with us. And thank you. Well, let me ask you a question. When you drive, do you like GPS? I admit, I hate getting lost. It really drives me nuts. But since the invention of global positioning, I take great comfort knowing that a little box knows where I am and where I'm supposed to be going. And I have driven thousands of miles with little more than an address. I jump in my van, I give it an address, and we blindly follow. And for the most part, Google gets me where I'm supposed to be. And I'm enormously grateful. Now, most of us do like GPS. That's been a blessing. If you know what a road atlas is and you remember carefully crafting out family vacations, GPS is a great blessing. But how many of you like, you know, going to the DMV and taking a road test? That's a very different experience, isn't it? Now you have someone that's still evaluating your driving, but they're not there to be helpful. They're there to be a judge. And they sit there stoically with their clipboard and they mark off everything that you do wrong. How's your driving? Right? We wouldn't call that pleasure cruising, right? That's tense. You know what's worse than that? It's when you're driving down the road and a police officer pulls behind you and he's just doing his thing, just going where he's supposed to be going. And yet, you become aware of every twitch of your muscles and your exact speed and you're just very tense. Right? Because the person behind you has the authority not only to judge, but also to fine you know, your lack of driving skill, should that be necessary. Now, we are going to talk not about driving, but about conscience. Okay? The conscience uh, is often a nagging voice, much like that driving Uh, instructor or the police officer that's sort of assessing everything that you're doing and it makes us tense. But we want to experience guidance from our conscience rather than guilt. Now I hope, I hope something in that statement gives you some excitement. That just sort of draws you out saying, well, I would like to uh, enjoy my conscience. Most of us spend time either trying to suppress or ignore it. Um or we're arguing, trying to explain to it that what we're doing really is okay. But living with a sort of simmering, low-level guilt all the time is a lousy way to live. We want to have confidence. We want to have joy. And we want to even learn to appreciate and value our conscience. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10 this morning. We're going to learn how to make this critical transition As you're turning, we looked at this text a year ago. Uh, It's been a long time. This text, if you remember, is written to Jewish people who embraced Christianity, but then persecution came. And they started asking themselves, is this really worth it? And they were very tempted to go back into Judaism and leave Christ behind. And the author uh, explains the riches that are ours in Christ that can't be found anywhere else. And he shows how Christ is better than all the Old Testament trappings and pageantry and ceremony and how God's plan for the world is through Jesus. And we have liberation and joy and freedom through him. Let's look at our passage today. It says Hebrews 10. We're going to begin in verse 19. It says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus... By the new and living way he opened for us through the curtain 
That is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who has promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit is of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. What a fearful expectation of judgment and fiery fire that will consume the adversaries. So today we want to understand what the conscience is, how to respond to it, and how we can learn to value our conscience. Let's pray and we'll explore this topic. Father God, you always do what is good, right, and perfect. And we are fearfully and wonderfully made. You explain that you wrote your law in our hearts and gave us a conscience to guide us in life. Uh, But Lord, we have a tortured existence with our conscience. We don't always know how to respond to it, how to listen to it, and we do ignore it at our peril. Would you help us, Father, to understand your word today, and more than that, to live in it? Because in these words, we find life, we find joy. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Now, the author of Hebrews in our text, as you can see, says we can boldly approach God. Why? Well, because our hearts have been sprinkled clean, this is a really remarkable statement, from an evil conscience. Now, he's talking to people that have been delivered by Jesus. Everything has been made new, and that's a really big deal. But if we want to enjoy what the author is talking about... We need to understand what the conscience is. So let's start there this morning. What is the conscience? Well, perhaps the best definition is just simply this. It's our consciousness of what we believe to be right and wrong. Simple definition, but very carefully crafted. All right? The conscience is that little voice in your head. You know this, right? And it commends you when you do the right thing, and it shouts at you when you do the wrong thing. Now, of course, the conscience, that voice, is not infallible, right? They are, that voice is calibrated by what we perceive to be right and what we perceive to be wrong. Our conscience is calibrated by culture and by family and by background and our circumstances. Now, there are some universal feelings, right? Because, as Romans 1 explains, God wrote his law in our hearts, So we know instinctively that it's wrong to lie, even though we all do it. We know it's wrong to murder. We even know it's wrong to hit someone. You do that, your conscience will uh, remind you that you shouldn't live that way. But of course, these feelings can be suppressed. We can justify ourselves in our minds, which is why everyone has different standards, how we should live our lives, and no two consciences are alike. A little bit like fingerprints. So let's talk about the strength and the weakness of our conscience. First of all, our conscience, it guides us through life. Now that makes it incredible valuable because here you have a guide for all of those nuanced choices that you make every day. You make thousands of choices. 
It watches us in public and in private and helps us to navigate all those complex social situations. Right? The conscience is the thing that's governing everything from ethics to manners. Now, you should feel bad when you're being petty or selfish. That's a good thing, right? Showing us a better way to live. That's not a design flaw. It's a feature about how God designed you. Because God designed the universe that when we are living in such a way and we're we're treating other people well and living justly, you should feel good about that. And selfish actions should make you feel hollow and guilty because you've done something wrong. You're hurting yourself. You're hurting other people. Now, these feelings, right, that conscience is there to help you manage these fleshly appetites that all of us have that would lead us into destructive lives. If you want to watch this in action, watch a toddler. Toddlers are just completely consumed with their passions, and that will lead them to run over and snatch a toy from someone else or to hit someone else, but they will also feel bad about it. Maybe not immediately, but you watch the, the wheels in their head turn, Right? They want something very badly, but they're making sense of like, this emotional response. Like, what is this? Right? I wish I could say kids always responded with humility and contrition. They don't always. But you can see the battle raging in their minds. Now, we as adults, that battle rages. We're just a little more sophisticated. We hide it a little better. Now, with practice... If a child is parented well, they will learn to let their conscience govern their passions. And what will that do? Well, that will be the basis that will forge their character and their habits that will lead them the rest of their life. But there's a problem. You're probably already ahead of me, right? Our conscience isn't always right. Many of us, in fact, all of us have miscalibrated consciences. Right? Some of us, when you wake up, you feel morally compelled to make the bed in the morning. And some of you don't care. Wow. Our consciences, um, you know, some of you, to, to put your elbows on the table is a mortal sin. And some of you feel the same way. If, you, if someone were to leave the toilet seat up, unacceptable. Right? What are you, a bunch of barbarians? All right, all right. What, what's going on there is we, we take family rules and we elevate them to moral standards. Okay? And that makes us, you know, our conscience become overly sensitive. And we can feel guilty um, for ways that are living, that are completely moral, but maybe different from the way we were raised. Or we can try to bind other people's consciences to the way we live. That is a good idea but not insisted on in Scripture. Now, when this happens, our world gets filled with guilt and shame, and we become rather paralyzed. It's very hard to enjoy the good gifts God's given us because everybody's got a different opinion, and they don't want me to do this, and I'm not sure if I can do that, and it's hard. So if a conscience becomes miscalibrated, a person might be tempted to ignore it, right? Talked a little bit about check engine lights. When a check engine light comes on, it's almost never a serious problem. But you better check it, because it might be. (laughs) Uh, But if that light were to flicker on all in time, you would kind of tune it out. You're like, yeah, there it goes again. It always comes on. I don't know why, but it does. And if your conscience is always signaling, and you always feel bad about just living, you're like, you know what, this is, I I can't live this way. And you you start to tune it out. So how do you respond to conscience? That's a good question. 
There are really five things you can do with the conscience. Over time, we do get a little confused. Some people, it seems like they can do whatever they want, right? It's like, man, do you even have a soul? I mean, they just, they just live any way they want, even in selfishness. And some people are just paralyzed and so introspective. I don't know about that. Wow, they just, just kind of hold themselves up in their living room. Now, if you live with people long enough, which is about two days, maybe an afternoon, you've got to realize they live differently than you do. Right? They do. And sometimes with complete freedom. And what happens is when you start living with people and you see the difference in standards that provokes something of a personal crisis, which one of us is right? Now that should drive us back to Scripture to sort of examine that, but we need to, to figure out how to uh, reconcile these things. Now, often people in our lives are pressuring us to change. We've got all these voices and we don't know who to listen to. It's no wonder that psychiatrists, right, often get paid a lot of money to help people stop listening to their conscience. Why? Because no one wants to feel guilty, right? Feeling guilty makes us feel lousy. And it sure seems like that's a defect. Boy, if you were just free to that conscience thing, you could be free to do whatever you want and enjoy it. Well, obviously, that, that's not a, a good thing. No one wants the burden of an inner critic holding us back, but we do need some guidance. So how do people respond? Well, the most natural approach to the conscience is to ignore it. Okay? Most people do this. How do you ignore your conscience? Well, normally you just drown it out with lots of distractions. We stay very, very busy. Because you know, the pandemic taught you, if you're alone with your thoughts, your thoughts might drive you nuts. You notice that, right? When you finally slow down, it's surprising the thoughts that have been in the background that you just haven't been conscious of. And they, they sort of seep forward, reminding you of stuff that you've done or failed to do. Right? You've been there. Quiet afternoon, you're just going to relax, and there's the voice. You really should call your mother. You really should. Right? Ah! Leave me alone! I want to watch Netflix. All right, all right. We don't like that. And so, uh, we don't want to feel the guilt about our mistakes or people that we've hurt. Alone time brings back memories of regrets. And unfortunately, we don't have a good way of fixing the past. So the problem, though, is if you try to run from your conscience, you can't really escape the voice in your head. And the more you run, you tend to do more and more things that you regret. And so the conscience and the guilt just gets bigger and bigger, like you're trying to outrun a wave, and eventually it crests and goes over you, and it's just devastating. That'd be a really serious identity crisis because they're running, trying to do their thing, and then it just life catches up to them. They're like, you know what? I'm a mess. I'm a wreck. So the second approach to people is they sear it, right? Some people tackle the problem of a noisy conscience by trying to convince themselves, I haven't done anything wrong. You've done this. You know people that have done this. And if you're a parent, you get to watch this in action every day. Hey, lay off. This is just fine. Do you really believe that? I'm working on it. You know, I'm working on believing that. We explain away the guilt. We blame other people for the shame. And what we're doing is we're actually intentionally miscalibrating our conscience. That way we can do what we want to do and not feel bad about it. For most people, this just means changing the definitions. Okay, I didn't lie. I just didn't uh, explain to people what was going on because they couldn't handle that reality. I was really looking out for them. Right, right. 
right? Sexual choices are just an expression of who I am and who I love, and nobody should get to judge that. I'm not stealing. I'm just taking stuff from people that have too much because I don't have enough. No, people, people say this with a straight face. They do it on the news. They do it in classrooms. They do it in psychiatrist offices. I'm not kidding, right? People feel guilty. They say, I know how we can fix the guilt. We'll just, we'll just turn off the alarm system. We'll just turn it off. Now, this is a simple exercise in rationalization, and all of us rationalize, because we want to think of ourselves as moral, but we want the freedom to bend the rules. Everybody does this. Well, if you lie to yourself, you're in trouble if you start believing your own lies. Why? Because you won't be able to see the truth, but the consequences still catch up to you, right? God built a moral universe, and God designed it so you reap what you sow. And if you deaden your conscience, you might not feel guilty for your choices, but you're still going to pay the consequences when they come due, because God is just, and everyone eventually faces the judge. I mean, isn't it amazing how many powerful, wealthy people cheat on their taxes? Or they cheat on their spouse, or they lie to business partners or customers. And it works for a while, but eventually it comes out and there's scandal and they lose everything. You're like, man, was it worth it? Did you need the fifth car or could you have just been content and been honest? But they do. They live that way until it all comes crashing down. Now, some people, it does seem like they escape justice in this life, but I promise you, God is a righteous judge, and he makes all things right in the end. Well, what do we do? Right? On one hand, we're overwhelmed by the voice of conscience, and we don't know what to do with it, but we can't ignore it, or we're going to end up in a worse situation. Right? We've got a nagging voice that we can't live with, but we dare not go out blindly on our own. What do we do? Well, our passage offers us some good advice. You can cleanse it. This is an incredible possibility, right? Verse 19 invites us to draw near to the perfect God because we are cleansed because of the blood of Jesus. This is the gospel, but the application is one you may not have considered. God knew. He knew you wouldn't be able to keep his law. So what did he do? Well, he knew your heart wouldn't even want to. So he sent Jesus, and Jesus lived the perfect life that you and I couldn't live. He kept all the rules. He maintained all the right relationships. He listened to the Father. He obeyed his conscience. He did it all right. And then he died to pay for all of your and my sinful, selfish choices. So they're all paid for. He took all the blame, all the guilt, all the shame. And this says, come here. I'll give you my perfect record. I'll take away your penalty. And Jesus made a way back to God. And now you and I, if you've been rescued by Jesus, we're robed by the perfection of Jesus. I can't stand on my record ever, and neither can you. Not yesterday, not today, not tomorrow. But when you realize that God, uh, that Jesus took the blame for everything, then when your conscience accuses you, it's a different dynamic. So the next time, right, you're feeling horribly guilty, because you were a little rude to somebody or you forgot to meet an obligation, you can just tell your conscience, don't blame me, blame Jesus. Saying it that way on purpose, all right? Because Jesus did take all the blame and the shame, and we do stand as accepted children of God, sons and daughters. 
Now, every time I say that, I'm going to guess you have the same emotional reaction I do. My heart starts screaming, that's not fair. That is wildly unjust. And it is. I call that grace. But another thing comes back, I become instantly humbled. To think that I could live in a cavalier way and my selfish choices resulted in the death of God. I dare not continue to go down a road that brought Jesus suffering just because I want to indulge myself when he died to rescue me from that kind of toxic living. Do you see the dynamic, how it works? A little counterintuitive. But when I realize that Jesus has taken all that blame and shame and I'm not under it anymore, there's a new dynamic that fills my heart. We would just call it gratitude. Humble gratitude. Now, knowing Jesus paid the penalty for my sin allows me to come to the Father. But I need God to help me quiet my conscience. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, what? To forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This passage always fascinates me. Because when are you confessing? When you're walking with the Father? You're walking in the light? That's when we, that's when we confess. Our concern is not just justification. But if you're walking in the light, you're not afraid of condemnation. You're not afraid of God just lowering the boom. You're walking with him. You're in sweet fellowship. So what is, what's going on here? Well, what we need is we need to hear the Father forgiving us. We need to experience cleansing that he offers at his throne of grace. It's like the prodigal son, right? coming home full of regrets, clothed in rags, and yet the father meets him at the door and embraces him and says, hey, bring the family ring. Bring the best robe and start that party, you know? Invite all the friends. I want to show them the, father, the son has returned. He's alive. He's welcome. He's embraced. So we're welcomed and cleansed, not because of our work, but because of Jesus. It is possible, friends, to allow God to rescue your soul, but not to trust him with your conscience. What am I talking about? Stop trying to atone for your failures by doing good works. You will never, ever impress God by attending services or giving money to the church or even serving other people, right? When you blow it, God doesn't meet you with probation, right? Or now we talked about this and you did it again. And so now it's time out for a year, right? God doesn't do community service, right? Well, because you blew it, now you get extra work. You have to read three chapters of the Bible every day and go to church an extra day. God doesn't, God doesn't treat us that way. Aren't you glad? No, I, I, am, I am dead serious here. Would you stop trying to atone for your failures by trying to be extra good? That is a dead end. It'll lead you to burnout and you can't do it. You can't impress other people that way, let alone God. Instead, God intends to humble us with our grace and then heal our hearts through his embrace. And when we're in his presence, we see the foolishness and we don't want to go back to the old toxic way. God's plan is to conquer our hearts, not with law, but with love. And so we walk with the spirit. And when we do, when we're walking with God, amazingly, we fulfill the law. We're free from the lie. I promise you, the prodigal did not receive the grace of the father and then go running back to the far country, right? 
He knew it was a lie. And he felt such kindness. He stayed with the Father. You see, you and I still fail. But we are growing in our ability to reject the lies of our culture and our misplaced passions. Um, And verse 23 uh, tells us to hold fast our hope without wavering. Which means you hold on to your identity in Jesus and you hope that you'll be fully... Um, fully delivered. Sorry, I lost my place here. When Christ takes us home. And this hope allows us to reject fear and anxiety and shame. So we leave the past behind us and we press on toward assurance that Christ is going to win and he's going to use us for our good and his glory. And that's incredible news because being in God's family solves the problem of crushing guilt. Guilty conscience. Because we always have a place to go for cleansing. You can always find freedom after a failure. Now, the beautiful thing is, when your conscience condemns you, you have a place to go to get cleansing, but it's still there to help you make sense of life. So the only remaining problem is that our conscience has been miscalibrated by culture. Right? So everybody here, our conscience accuses us for things that really aren't wrong, and it excuses us for things that we are doing wrong, we're just not aware of. So we still have a gift of conscience, but we need to do something with it, and that means we need to educate it. How do you do that? Well, you recalibrate your conscience by spending time in God's Word. Right? We want our conscience to be grounded by God's revealed Word, not by some sort of slavish adherence to family rules. That's not enough. We want to know why things are right and wrong. We want to make very informed choices. So we grow in maturity, and this is, this is great. We grow in maturity as we spend time with other believers. Remember, we started saying, you start hanging out with people, and you realize they live differently than you. That should drive both of you back to the Word of God, saying, hey, how can you and I better honor God? And in that process, you're going to lay aside some standards saying, you know what, I don't need that. Maybe that was necessary when I was a teenager or when I was a child, but now I'm an adult and my love for Christ is greater and I can lay this aside and safely honor God in a greater degree of freedom. But as you walk with people that truly love the Lord, you're going to realize they're sensitive to things about things you've not been sensitive about. And you just say, you know what? I have been wasting my time and my life. I think I'm going to start following their example. And I'm going to start cutting some things out of my life that are just distracting or not helpful or not life-giving. You see, we get to do that as family. Now, all standards fall into one of three categories. Okay? There's a first-tier category, and those are things explicitly explained in Scripture. There's just no question how to obey God. Murder, adultery, theft, lying, they all fit on the list. Ten Commandments, really clear. But there's a second tier. And there's a second tier where um, we as believers try to understand what God is saying, but it's, the meaning's a little less clear. And these are denominational things, largely. Um, and we feel very strongly about them, but we recognize that other believers reach different conclusions. These involve like modes of baptism or interpretations of God's sovereignty, roles of men and women in the home and in the church. And we feel really strongly about these things, right? You wouldn't attend a church family that disagreed with you here because you're like, I think this is the, the right way to interpret scripture, but we wouldn't 
call out all the other denominations and say, well, yeah, they're not, they're not Christ followers. That would be, be a little unfair, right? And so there's a the second tier. Now, there's a third tier, a third tier um, that concerns decisions we make that are not spelled out in Scripture. These aren't interpretational challenges. We just have Bible principles, and we're trying to live them out, but the way we apply them is different. It's a, it's a third tier of conscience, and these are what we'd normally call standards. So we're trying to apply Bible principles to honor God and to serve him well. But these standards are personal to us, and we're not allowed to bind other people's consciences to our standards. Now you can. You can have a conversation saying, hey, I have found great benefit in living this way. It helps me stay passionately in love with my Savior. I'd like to recommend it to you. You can absolutely do that. But you can't make your walk with God law for somebody else. Now, we looked at Romans 14 and 15, and we were learning to how to handle those personal differences. If you flip your hand out over, there's 12 principles from that text. That list is from uh, Dr. Andy Nacelli, professor out at Bethlehem uh, in Minnesota, the seminary there. He's a, a great guy. I've leaned heavily on his book uh, in preparing these messages. I'm grateful, and I wanted to share that with you. So we're educating our conscience by Scripture, and then there's one last thing that we need to do, and that is to trust our conscience, all right? Because at the end of the day, the Spirit wants to guide you through your conscience. Now, if you're in Christ, you don't have to be afraid of your conscience. Because when your conscience gets noisy, you've got a place to go. Find forgiveness, find cleansing. And as you study the Word of God, it's being recalibrated. Um, And you're confident that you're being led to follow Christ. And it's very important. Okay, can we hear this? Talking about conscience is maybe the most important thing. Very, very important that you don't ever, ever violate your conscience. We looked at this. Whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats. Because the eating is not from faith. For whoever does not, um, does what is not proceeded from faith is sin. It's actually said several places in the New Testament, right? There is so much delight in living for the glory of God. When you remember the goodness of the Father, and you know it's your privilege to show people what the Father is like, there's joy. And when you're confident, now think about this, when you are absolutely confident the choice you're going to make, the visit you're going to make this afternoon, the way you spend your time on Monday is going to bring God glory and bring Him joy, you step into that event with so much confidence, don't you? You know God's going to be pleased, and you look forward to that event. We're coming up on the Christmas season, and I I love buying gifts for my wife. I just do. But I love it best when she sort of just like casually mentions she would like to have something, but she'd never buy it for herself. I genuinely sneak away, and I order that quickly, and then I stash it until the holiday comes. Birthday, Christmas, I love doing that. Why? Because I have an awesome gift that I know she's going to be surprised and I know she's going to enjoy it. Shopping as a guy when you know what you're looking for is a pleasure. It's amazing. Yeah, but we've all seen guys, you know, paralyzed looking at the shoe section like, I don't know. Right? It's miserable not to know. Would they like it? Would they not like it? I don't want to waste my money. I don't want to insult them. Right? We go through these mental gymnastics. Okay, silly illustration, but a similar dynamic because we're talking about a relationship with God. And there is so much boldness 
when you know you're doing the right thing and that God would be honored by your actions. On the other hand, if you're not sure that the choice you're about to make will display the glory and the greatness of your God, if it won't show the world how much you love your Savior, then don't do it. The question is not, will God punish you? Will he hate you forever for your failure? That's a terrible way to treat a relationship. Imagine one of you come to me and said, hey, I'm going to take a road trip for four days. You want to come along? I think to myself, well, I guess if I did that, my wife wouldn't divorce me. I guess you're I'm in. You say, wait, what? Right? We're not, we're not lowest common denominator. If that's the way you think about your marriage, you are in so much trouble. Right? I would consider the well-being of my wife and my family. The text explains Jesus has done everything for us. He's forgiven our failures. He's brought us back into the family. He's cleansed our conscience and filled us with faith. Now we know how empty life is without God. And we listen to our conscience to guide us so that when we live, we display our love and our confidence in God. And if we're unsure that our action would honor God or help a relationship, we just don't do it. Now, very briefly, when we land this thing, I want to look at the text to see how amazing living this way is. It all starts with a fresh outlook, right? Verse 23 says, Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. You see, when you live with a clear conscience, it's building your faith. Your conscience warns you about something that somebody else is doing, or everybody else is doing, right? And you're like, oh, wow, I wish I could do that. But then you're reminded of your relationship to the Father, his incredible love for you, his promise to satisfy your heart. And you talk to God about that decision, You carefully consider, would this display my love and confidence in the Father, or am I doubting his goodness and wanting to find satisfaction elsewhere? I better not do that. I'd rather enjoy God than do something, some hokey event for an afternoon. You see, this is not about keeping a long list of rules. No, this is about valuing God above everything else. And if you're not sure you can represent God well, then you abstain until you get more guidance. Um, remember our criteria of being fully convinced. I have this somewhere. Here it is. Right? First of all, when I'm making choices, what I'm doing is not sinful. I'm, I'm confident it's honoring to Christ and it's the best action I can make given these circumstances. These come from Pastor John Piper. They're just so helpful. Right? If you were to think through what you're going to do this week by this criteria, you would live with so much boldness, knowing that the seal of God's approval was on your life. You'd be fearless, even if what you were doing was hard. Even if you were asked to suffer, you say, you know what? I'm walking this road. I'm honoring the word of God that I understand. I'm doing this because I love my Savior. It's the best I can do in this circumstance. And I'm waiting for God to heal my heart, to resource me, to help me. Secondly, not only do we have bright hope, we have empowered service. And you'll notice there's a a transition in thought here. The author explains this incredible position. If you're in the family, he encourages us to be stirred up, to stir others up to love and good works. And that makes perfect sense. Because if you're living to please the Father, then you're going to spend your time investing in His kids. 
serving the people that bear his image. And there are a lot of people in your church family, and even in, like extended other believers that you know, that are, they need help walking with God and thriving in life, don't they? Aren't there people that are all just chewed up with guilt and shame, and they need this kind of hope? Like, oh my word, this cleansing. Let the past go. There's so much help. And as you walk with God and have him heal your heart, you have so much to offer other people. You can help people who are filled. You can help neighbors who are full of guilt and shame and they're trying to ignore or suppress the conscience just to get through life and they're, they're taking up destructive habits to numb the pain. And you show them, hey, there's a better way to live. You and I are ministers of reconciliation. We are the bearers of a living hope and a boundless joy. And this text is quick to warn us. And this is where we end. Verse 26 says, if you get this close to the Father, you taste his goodness, but then choose to reject him and indulge your passions in the sewer of culture, there's no longer any hope for you. You say, that sounds really dangerous. It is, I assure you, it's a strong warning. Because you, if you understand what God is calling you to into his family, you feel the love, you feel the invitation, but then you push it away and you treat it like trash. There's nothing else to turn to. You're running away from the only thing that can rescue you in the universe. You are throwing away your chance at cleansing and acceptance and lasting satisfaction and security. I want to paint for you what this is like. Imagine the prodigal son He's in his rags. He's starving. He's embarrassed. And not just the father, but the God of the universe greets him at the door, gives him a bear hug, calls for the family ring for identity, the best robe, orders the massive party, says, I want you in the family. Tells you, I'm committing my power and my wealth to healing your heart, to helping you thrive. But then you look up and say, well, you know, Dad, I just wanted to drop by, see how you were doing. I can't stay long because, you know, the pig slops do at 5 o'clock, and I really don't want to miss that meal, so see ya. Maybe I'll see you later. You'd say, you're nuts. You're out of your mind. That is insane. But if you walk away from the family of God, knowing what God is offering you, there is no other hope. Where are you going to go to find this? There's nothing else. You're running away from the only thing that brings lasting satisfaction and hope. And I'll be honest, walking with God is not always easy, and God often does things we do not expect. However, God always does what is good, right, and perfect. And you'll never regret trusting him with everything. We need to close. All of us need to talk to God about this text would you confess your sin and find cleansing today? Walk out of here cleansed. Ask for help and guidance. Ask for the Father to help you overcome toxic habits so you can live the incredible life he designed for you. Would you pray privately? And then I'll lead us together.
Gracious Father, this is a powerful, liberating truth. So much of our misery has come because we have not understood this. We ignore your warnings. We look for satisfaction apart from you. And yet what you have offered us is healing and cleansing and love and joy. Father, may we leave here with our standards very high. We want love and joy and peace and endurance and patience and goodness and kindness. We want these to be the defining characteristics of our life. We want your spirit to do his work. Oh, Father, we need forgiveness. We need cleansing. We've gone to such worthless pursuits to find joy. Father, would you teach our church family how to enjoy you? Would you teach us how to love one another? And when we display your fame, your glory to our community, we ask these things in your name.